0: Well, you ready to get into Chapter 5? Yes. Are you sure? (laughs) Because today we're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk, we we saw Babylon doesn't last very long. Okay, this iteration of Babylon doesn't last very long. Daniel's there pretty much for the beginning, and uh, he's there to see the end. So we're going to see that today. But I think more importantly for us, uh, we need to ask the question, what do we learn from what happens in Babylon and how does that apply to nations today? How does that apply to the United States? I couldn't help but think last night as the president gave his State of the Union, what would the Lord say if he gave the State of the Union right now about the United States? What would his commentary be? It might be a little bit different than what we uh, think it would be. So let's pray together. God, we ask as we look at the book of Daniel today, open our hearts and minds uh, to understand the things that you are saying to us Help us to know what happened then, but more importantly, what does it mean to us today? What are you saying to us today? Open our minds, open our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is where uh, we get the uh, saying, the handwriting is on the wall. Mm -hmm. Another uh, saying that comes out of the book of Daniel. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then he brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them and they drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now we're not sure that last verse, whether that means they were praising the idols that they knew by name, like Bel, or whether they were actually just kind of mocking and praising uh, material things. And we all know idolatry can take the form of an actual god or goddess, but it can also be something else that our hands have made, something material that we worship, something that our, our heart is attached to. So let's talk about Belshazzar a little bit. Um, he is the son and co-regent of Nabonidus. Uh, so he he was at home. Actually, his father was out fighting against the Medes and the Persians while this was happening. So his dad was out with the army, with the troops on the eastern border fighting Medea. The, um, uh, actually, uh, Medea was one of the provinces of, even by this time, of Persia. And uh, so Babylon is conquered, first of all, by Medea, and then later uh, by Persia. Cyrus himself, who is the ruler over all Persia, comes and takes over Babylon. But if you can imagine, uh, here he is. Uh, Nabonidus is the seventh and the last king of Babylon in this iteration of Babylon. This is the, the third kingdom of Babylon. So he's Nabonidus is the, is the last king. His son is the co-regent. He's at home holding down the fort. And you have to ask the question, what's going on in the son's mind? Is he uh, thinking, uh, we've got this in the bag, that we have actually, thank you. Forgive me. So you have to wonder, did he think that, he he may have thought that the battle was won, and that they were gonna celebrate, and he had a confidence that his his father was gonna win the battle, and that Babylon would uh, win this war. But actually, what historians tell us and Xenophon and uh, um, Herodotus, Xenophon was a Persian historian, so of course he's going to give the Persian version. Herodotus (laughs) was a Greek historian. Both of them say that things were already going poorly for Babylon. So chances are, this is kind of an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die festival. (laughs) So we, we can only guess what was really going on. There's much debated about Belshazzar. We really don't know a lot about him. but And for years, uh, many people thought, well, Belshazzar is not really a king of Babylon. He doesn't fit in. Uh, but then they realized that he really is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus is the son, and he was a co-regent with his father. And that's the word there that says son can be uh, grandson or son. It means progeny, and uh, so that's what's going on. Uh, he was considered a weak and worthless king by a lot of sources, uh, both biblical and ex- extra-biblical sources. Holman Bible Dictionary says that he was not thought very highly of at all. And uh, so we ask the questions as you read these verses: What is this? What do you see here about Belshazzar? What do these verses tell us about him? Just real quickly. He was arrogant. Yeah, I think he's pretty arrogant, isn't it? Mm-hmm. What else?
1: King Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, obviously his conversion did, uh, did not affect his progeny. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. People forget pretty pretty quickly after things happen. What else? What else do you see? Yeah. He
1: didn't care about the Jewish things from the temple. He was going to use them for his own secular. Process.
0: You have to ask the question. There are several possibilities here, and you, that's a good point you're bringing up. You have to ask the question, did he think there was some kind of magical significance in bringing those out that would have given them favor in battle or at Mm -hmm. that moment? Because for a lot of people thinking, well, I'll take out these things. There's power because they were dedicated (laughs) to a god. But he didn't understand holiness, evidently. And he didn't understand that what he was doing was really probably the last straw in God's judgment falling against Babylon. He he really dishonored the Lord. These weren't just things that the priests used in their personal life. These were used in the worship of the temple, so uh, this would have been uh, pretty egregious. So
2: he's he's caught up sincerely in the uh, privileged status that he has. He's a ruler, wealthy, they're in charge. Whatever they want, they can do. Whatever they want, you you do what my bidding and what yeah. I
0: did. So that's the normal yes. that he had. Yeah, exactly. Does he sound like another king, by the way, from another book in this time? Not Nebuchadnezzar, but think about Esther and Ahasuerus, which, by the way, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. We're going to find out about him because, actually, um, he is the one that's fighting against, you know, he's fighting Nabonidus right now. So this is all going on. So I'll so explain that in a moment. So the
1: Book
0: of Esther is a parallel. Esther comes at the end of Daniel's life. So Daniel is by this time probably at least 85, probably late 80s, and uh, Esther is probably just beginning her uh, career, probably now or shortly after, with uh, Ahasuerus So this is an amazingly huge feast. Uh, the 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 numbers there probably are just an estimate, kind of an exaggeration or whatever when it says a thousand or thousands. But if you remember Ahasuerus and his folks got drunk and that's when he called for his wife to come in. She was a smart lady and said, I'm not going into that rabble. And uh, same thing with Belshazzar here. So uh, Daniel makes a point of specifically recording that they use the temple implements to praise praise false gods, which indicates to us that this is probably the last straw for uh, judgment. This this was it. Uh, I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Isaiah 39, because this is all prophesied, what's going to happen about 170 years before. And it gives you an idea, again, of how intricately God um, is involved in the nations and the rising and falling of kings and the judgment of nations.
2: What? Isaiah 39.
0: Isaiah 39. So this is during the time of Hezekiah, so this would have been when Israel, the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes, uh, were still in the land of Israel, and Hezekiah was one of the last great kings of Israel, and I love the names of the Babylonian kings, by the way. Evil Merodach is my favorite, but this guy's good, too. Merodach Baladan. It kind of rolls off your tongue. But it says, uh, this is uh, verse 1, At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. At this time, the people of Israel had very little clue who Babylon really was, who these people were. Babylon was just becoming another factor again. They were kind of rising up out of the ashes. So Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses. Hezekiah took them and showed them everything from the temple, everything in his treasury. It says the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. You have to ask the question at this point. What was he thinking?
3: Yeah. It off?
0: It could have been, yeah. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say? You can imagine this conversation. And where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah said. Not that far away, <laughs> because they were close enough to invade. So Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon, and the prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. I want to stop there, and I want to ask you a question. Does what our ancestors, what they did in their time, does that affect us in the present day? Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is a hundred and how many years?
0: 170 years before. He says, Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. A little short-sighted there. (laughs) That's like, okay, well, we're going to use the grandkids' inheritance. You ever see the bumper sticker that says, I'm spending my grandkids' inheritance? Well, that's what Hezekiah does right there. So just uh, amazing and uh, kind of uh, chilling, isn't it? I want to take, just take a moment. I want to read, uh, we're going to read what happens next, but I want to read a little background about what's happening here. This is out of Holman's Bible Dictionary, which I think is one of the best commentaries on, on this part of Daniel. And it says, Although this verse clearly sets Belshazzar apart from Nebuchadnezzar in his closing years, it does not surprise students of ancient history. The NIV study Bible reminds us that the orgy of revelry and blasphemy on such occasions is confirmed by ancient Greek historians, Herodotus and Xenophon. Belshazzar, whose name means, Bel protect the king, in other words, it was the name of their god, protect the king, that's what Belshazzar means, reigned in Babylon while his father, Nabonidus, was off fighting the Persians. However. And this is what his son probably didn't know at this point. His father had already been taken captive. He had been captured and the battle was being lost. The forces united the Medes and the Persians at the very moment, uh, they had surrounded the territory of Babylon and had already conquered the suburbs. So they were close to taking the city as the feast went on. Why on such a frightening evening would a king decide to throw a party? Many reasons have been offered. Perhaps a reaffirmation of pagan gods to build courage of his royal leaders. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Or maybe they genuinely believed that the gigantic walls of Babylon would protect them from any kind of invading force indefinitely. So we crashed the party as the top brass of the kingdom decided to do a Babylonian impression of Isaiah's uh, condemnation of Jerusalem. Let me skip down here. Um, Leon Wood observes Oriental custom called for the king to sit at separate tables at such a feast. So, the king would sit at a separate table. And according to historians, the king was supposed to set the, the tenor of the feast. So, if he got drunk, everybody got drunk. If he was wild and crazy, everybody did. But he set, everybody kind of watched the king was up on a dais, up on a platform, so to speak. And there he could give attitude, guidance for the attitude, atmosphere, and the tempo of the feast. And notice here, That Belshazzar drank wine before others is to say he was setting an atmosphere of uh, one of carefree hilarity. All present then would would and should not only feel free to follow his lead, but make it a point to do so. To revelry and orgy, Belshazzar now added blasphemy. At his worst, Nebuchadnezzar had never tampered with the sacred vessels of the gods. And certainly not those from the God of Israel, whose young men had become high officials in his government. Nor should we expect Nebuchadnezzar would have uh, raised Belshazzar, who was not his son, but more likely his grandson. Neither Hebrew or Aramaic has a term, by the way, for grandfather or grandson. So that's the problem here. When used in the plural, the word fathers can refer all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So um, that's the problem here. So some commentators believe that Belshazzar would not have tampered <coughs> with these sacred vessels had he been sober. Therefore, thereby taking the phrase, well, Belshazzar was drinking. So probably in his state, he made a bad uh, move here. Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, the hardly a sterling example of righteousness, comes across in secular history as something of a priest and scholar. But the weakness of the son he left behind to mind the store glares at us from these first uh, four verses of (coughs) Daniel 5. So we might compare it to a group of drunks stealing the church's communion set in order to drink from its glasses at their Mm -hmm. favorite bar. It's a wonder Belshazzar and the other revelers didn't choke on the wine and that no one was struck dead. So uh, just some interesting um, uh, background there. Let's read on in verse 5 here. It says, Immediately the fingers of human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. It's pretty graphic. (laughs) Then the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And of course, purple was uh, the color of royalty. So uh, that was the significance here. It says, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So this is where we get the um, saying that handwriting is on the wall. So let me ask a question here, because I think, and th- th- this, there's probably not a right, there is a right answer, only God knows but we can only posit what's happening here. Why do you think God chose this dramatic way to speak to Belshazzar and the people that are there in this feast? What do you think is going on? Any ideas? Yeah.
3: Belshazzar made it public about disgracing the um, temple objects yes. that were used for praise uh, for God.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I believe that this was God's way of Grace in him in front of
0: everybody. So, God is judging him at the level the same kind. Yeah, okay. I, I think that, that makes sense. Any other theories? Go ahead.
2: Well,
1: I mean, he's probably pretty plastered right now. So, if there's something on the wall, he's wasted. So yeah. if there's something literally tangible on the, the wall he's that so he's drunk, get away from. Yeah, so yeah. I mean <laughs>
0: just, to get through to just it. Just to make yeah. sure we get this on the tape. Yeah. So you're saying, yeah, so he's so drunk there has to be something really graphic to get his attention. Yeah.
2: yeah. It's one way of making sure that the event gets communicated throughout the entire region because everybody would talk because they've never seen anything
0: like it. So this happened twenty six hundred years ago and we still say the handwriting is on the wall. Mm -hmm. Think about that.
3: The writing's on the wall.
0: Yeah, Yeah, so this is (laughs) this made an impact. Pat, go ahead.
3: What's interesting about this is that they indicate that the hand
1: appeared opposite the left stand. Yeah. Obviously.
0: Yeah, Daniel's pretty careful about how he uh, records this, isn't he? Mm Yes.
2: Or did it come out of the shadows? You know, just trying to imagine how he saw that.
0: It was pretty dramatic. And how do you write in plaster? (laughs) So, I mean, did the hand actually leave an indentation in the plaster? That would have made an impression on me, too, pun intended. (laughs) I mean, think about that, okay? So
1: is wet, you can write in
0: it. This wasn't wet. But I
1: mean... Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, I've been in earthquakes, and it looks like the ground becomes fluid, mm-hmm. but to actually make an impression like that in something that's not Sorry. moving, and this is right. probably, if, if I know the construction in Babylon, we're not only talk, talking plaster, but we're talking like a strong stucco-type stucco thing. So, it's written right on there. So, this was no, the hand appeared human, meaning it was human in form, mm-hmm. but it definitely wasn't a human hand.
1: Right. Okay. I
3: Okay.
0: Always- Yeah. Interesting. So there, there are some things we won't know <coughs> until we maybe see the highlight films in no. heaven. <laughs> yes, ma'am.
3: Um, I think on Pat's point is very well taken about the um, lampstand. Lampstand. I thought about that too. Why yeah. did he see lampstand? And maybe it's because, think about it, that's all the light they had. So it had the opposite so that they could
0: see very it. Very visible. Yeah. that's That's good. Bob, one more it sets
2: the stage once again for Daniel to come in to
0: talk about his god. Yes. Yeah, and what language is this? <laughs> that nobody could read.
1: It's probably Hebrew.
0: Well, they they chances are somebody there could read Hebrew. That's I strange. would I would imagine. Yes. So I'm wondering what is what's what's going on here, okay? So, right, we'll you know, we'll look at that in, in a moment here, okay? Um, it's interesting in the New Testament where Paul is talking about the Jews asking for a sign. He says, signs are for those that, are, that don't believe. Uh, oh. And I thought about that when I read this, because sometimes I think God does things to get our attention.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: He gives dramatic signs to raise people's faith level and say, uh-oh, something big's happening here. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's going on. And signs confirm, what, God's authority and his voice on earth. So there's, a, there's an authority that goes along with that when something supernatural happens like that.
1: Well, it sobered him up
0: real fast. Yeah, well, kind of. His, well, his, I mean, his legs were ready to go out. We don't know yeah. if that was panic or whether he was partially drunk, well, but yeah, he, definitely he, so. he was losing a grip there. All right, let's look at verse 10. So it says the queen, and uh, in this case, again, the word is ambiguous. Uh, in this case, it's probably the queen mother, okay, and it can mean both. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in Daniel. In this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So uh, understand, again, Daniel's probably mid to late 80s at this point. He's probably in semi-retirement, although knowing Daniel, he's got a lot more life in him. He's ready to go. Um, but I want you to notice uh, as we read about Daniel's interaction Think about how different he treats uh, Belshazzar from Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Daniel is consistent with who he is, but there's a little bit of difference in the way he approaches his grandson. Verse 13 says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Let me stop there. Remember, Daniel was taken in 605 B.C. It is now 529. So uh, we're talking 76 years from the time that Daniel was taken. So if he he was 20, if he was 20 or if he was late teens, he's going to be in his mid to late uh, 90s at this point. Yeah. So, okay. He said, "Um, I heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. (laughs)
1: It's like been there, done that.
0: But he, it's, it's not the, the greeting that, oh, king, may you live forever, that he would have given to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think Daniel was a little disturbed to see the temple implements out there? Oh my. Probably Daniel is realizing what's happened as he comes into the room. Unless he heard that they did this and, and somebody had spilled the beans, Daniel is realizing what happened. And I think probably the gravity of the moment, he's pretty upset. And, uh, yeah, been there and done that is also, I mean, he's done this many times, so he's not treating him with the same deference that he treated um, Nebuchadnezzar.
2: You can also be aware of the fact that he's about to tell the king that he's going to die. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, he's done that before. Yeah, uh, you know, and he's yeah. done it with lots of deference and, oh, <clears> king, <throat> may be your enemies yeah. and not you. But he doesn't say that here either. It's okay, cool. so... Yeah. So, and and it's interesting. God gives prophets different messages at different times. Sometimes there's a prophecy that's meant to turn a person's heart away. There are the times when a prophet gives an imminent prophetic word that is going to happen uh, right then, and there's no room to get out. It's it's already been established, and that's hence the handwriting is on the wall means it's imminent. It's going to happen. Okay verse 18 it says oh oh he says nevertheless i will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation verse 18 o king the most high god gave nebuchadnezzar your father kingship greatness glory and majesty and because of the greatness that he gave him all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and your lords, and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed Mene, Mene Tekel Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel you have been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So what do you see here? How does how does Daniel present himself to the king? And how is it different than Daniel presented himself to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see the difference?
1: Sure. No, but he's very direct.
0: Yeah, he's very direct. And what did you, what did you say? Full yeah. of disdain. Full of disdain, yeah. Mm-hmm. Daniel's upset. Daniel's upset. And I think um, the Lord is upset. So obviously, he's God's representative. So Daniel definitely doesn't show as much uh, deference to Belshazzar as he had to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has no history or understanding had no history or understanding of Yahweh remember when Daniel came God is revealed to uh, Nebuchadnezzar so I think God gives Nebuchadnezzar some latitude because he didn't know him but the 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 grandson the sons the people of Babylon saw all these things happen in their lifetime and the lifetime before so the bar is raised when it comes to judgment The Lord is saying you should know better. The Lord has revealed his hand to these people. The same thing happens in Egypt as the judgment against Pharaoh escalates. In the beginning, God is compassionate. It's not as severe, but as time goes on, things get more severe. Take note of this because this is a pattern in the way that God deals with people and nations. God will bring judgment into your life with the intent of getting your attention and turning your heart toward him. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone. Sometimes when hard things happen in our life, it's God getting our attention. It's not God wanting to destroy us. But there comes a point where we, get, we grieve the Lord. When we purposely know the right way and we grieve God and go against him, his judgment becomes more severe until there comes a point in time where judgment is determined and it happens. Now, I'm not talking about being permanently lost, but I am saying that his judgment will fall. Yes, ma'am.
1: I find this particularly chilling being in ministry for decades and seeing people hear the word of God over and over and over again in our own congregation here and seeing that they don't change yeah. and they don't turn from their ways. And this lack of fear of the Lord is is quite chilling. Yeah.
0: I have I have to tell you several times in my ministry the Lord I've cried out to the Lord and I said, "Lord, I see people so many people not listening to you. And I know it's not just me, I was listening to uh, Alistair Begg on his radio show a couple years ago, and uh, in his charming uh, Scottish accent, he said, I can't believe that some of you sit here day after day, night after night, and you hear the word, and you're still not obeying, you are so stubborn. He just huh? right out said it, and, and it's true. I remember we had a prophecy many years ago, and it was Mike uh, Pavlantos read it, and it was uh, the words of Ezekiel that God gave to Ezekiel. The Lord said to Ezekiel, the people are going to listen to you like a fine-sounding voice. They're going to say, isn't he a good speaker? Mm -hmm. That's why it's chilling for me as a pastor when somebody comes up and says, man, you really did a great job today. That doesn't mean they heard what the Lord said. And I, I everybody needs encouragement, so I'm encouraged by that, but I'm much more encouraged when somebody says, "I am so convicted." Or that really was what I needed. God did something in me with what you shared today. Those are two two different things here, okay? So some people say, boy, you know, isn't he a great preacher? Well, isn't he a great comedian? Isn't he a great, you know, it's almost like entertainment. So yes, Pat. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. All I to think about is where we are now, and the Democrats and the Republicans. It was such a prophetic kind of, I don't know. Yes, ma'am. That last sentence was amazing. Yeah, definitely. Because we are divided. We are divided, yes. Yes, okay, one more comment. Ruth, yes.
3: Um, Historically, Mm -hmm. uh, when he's conquered, he's, he's killed
1: conquered by a foreign nation, but yeah. they still kept Daniel on as the chief of all the... Yes. Because often when they bring in their
0: own, or That's a good question. What happens is that the um, Chaldeans, the Magi, they serve a number of different administrations, and they end up lasting thousands of years. So they're still around when Herod, when Rome is there, and that's why Herod is so disturbed, because he knows these are the guys that show up when a king appears. Oh, yeah. Okay? They're known as the kingmakers. The wise men. Are the wise men. Them. So if you can imagine, this is why when the wise men came to uh, Herod and they said, hey, we've seen the sign in the skies that there's a new king bo- being born in Israel, what would be going through Herod's mind? There's going to be an insurrection. I'm going to be deposed. And these are the guys from Persia that we fought in 30 BC as a Roman general he was a Roman general and we couldn't beat them and now I've got these Persian wise men because now they're working in Persia and they come and they tell him so imagine that and I told you they show up when Alexander the Great goes to Babylon and and steps into the city the wise men show up and meet him at the gates they knew he was coming so I want to tell you what I think is happening here I think there were spies in that feast of Belshazzar I think by the time uh, Darius, by the way, the word Darius is—it's is like a, it means C, it, it could be uh, translated as Caesar. It's—it's it's a title, so we don't know if that's okay. his actual name or whether this was, you know, just general or Caesar. But when he comes in and he takes the city, probably one of the first things he heard is there was a prophet here who spoke about you coming and said that you were going to take the city. Well, if you were a leader coming into the city, you'd want to talk to this person, wouldn't you? So Daniel immediately becomes a person of interest with people that were there. I'm sure that there were spies in the city or people that reported to um, you know, this conqueror that's coming in. I, I want to I just stop here a second before we go on in Daniel, and I want to go back to Jeremiah because I want to get some background about judgment. And if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 25, I want to read about what the Lord says about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon back then. So we're going to go back 70 years in time. Jeremiah 25. Now remember, Jeremiah is the one that told the people of Israel that God had raised Nebuchadnezzar up, and he said, "You're to go with him. This is my plan." Remember, and he tells them, "You need to go and have children. You need to be, uh, you need to prosper in the city." Uh, you need to seek the good of the city and the blessing of the city. Uh, but this is what Jeremiah had to say. Jeremiah 25, verse 1. It says, The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Remember, it was in the 17th year of Josiah. I think the 17th year is when revival broke out, the revival of Josiah. They found the law in the temple, and they read it. There was a revival, but it wasn't a complete revival. It didn't totally transform society because the people turned back to idols. And Jeremiah says, remember, you didn't listen. All these years that I've been prophesying, you haven't listened. Verse 4 says, And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid attention. They said, Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them, and do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made, and then I will not harm you. So what's the Lord saying through Jeremiah? He's telling the people, Put away your idols. Stop your worship of false gods, and you can live in the land, and I will keep my covenant with you. Verse 7, he says, But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord, and you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. I've had some people tell me God doesn't get angry. I want to tell you that as the people of God, we need to get angry about the things that make God angry. That doesn't mean we react in the anger of men, because God's anger and and man's anger are very different. But the things that disturb God should disturb us. Okay? Verse 8, it says, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the people of the north, and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. How did God see Nebuchadnezzar? His servant. servant.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Imagine that. A pagan king. I mean, again, I I keep saying this because it messes my theology up. I thought God only used people that were totally consecrated. God uses anything and everything that pleases him. He is the Lord Most High. And he says, And I will bring them against this land, its inhabitants, and against all the surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish uh, from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sounds of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will be a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So this prophecy is pointing to the very time and moment that Daniel steps into that banquet hall. It's 70 years later from the time of this prophecy. Who's in control? God. Isn't this amazing? I mean, this is, you, you, the pieces are all there in the Old Testament. Sometimes we don't put them all together. But this, this kind of puts us together. I thought this would be good to just take a look at this. Look what he says in verse 12. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and this nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. And I will bring on that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. Stop there, and I want to say something. Israel had a chance and had a choice. The choice was, stop worshiping idols, honor me, and I will bless you forever, and you will prosper in the land. Babylon had a choice. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the choice to say, this God is the Lord Most High. We are going to put away all other gods, and we will serve him and serve him only. And guess what? I think Babylon would have lasted a lot longer. What happened in Nineveh, which is one of the other cities that Nimrod planted, when Jonah went to them? It was one of the most amazing revivals of all time. It says the, the king put on sackcloth, and he repented. And it gave them another, I think it was 120 or 140 years, until Nahum comes with another prophecy and says, okay, you guys are in trouble again. Mm. You're falling into the same pattern of wickedness and idolatry. But because they repented, God blessed them and stayed his hand of judgment. So we need to understand that God will, he's very compassionate, he's very kind, he's long-suffering. He gave the Amorites 700 years to repent before he gave the land of Canaan to Israel. Mm -hmm. Think about that. And he told the people, he told Abraham, he says, until the time of the Amorites' rebellion against me is fulfilled, he said, I won't bring you back to the land. So God has... Times, seasons, and boundaries set for every nation. Yes, ma'am.
1: Were the nations uh, that Israel was going to take, were they aware of God?
0: Yes. So if you go back in time, uh, they were all, um, at one point, they come from Noah and Noah's sons. And even Egypt was founded by, you know, only several generations from Noah. And that's why uh, some of the ancient historians in in the time of ancient Greece and Persia, um, they, it's interesting, they they call the Pyramid of Giza, which is different than any of the other pyramids, by the way. Its engineering is exquisite and perfect. Even better than pyramids that came hundreds of years later, it was called the Pillar of Enoch. Yeah. We don't know what that means. But uh, Herodotus went and interviewed the priest in Egypt And he interviewed, he traveled to all these countries. He was the first methodical scientific historian, and he actually went and traveled these ancient pathways to study the ancient peoples, and he came back with a story of what he heard from the priests. So I'm sure he wasn't perfect in everything he said, but he has some pretty good insights. Yes, Gabby. Um, So this
1: prophecy, what... Where is that in the timeline-wise?
0: This prophecy is being spoken about 605 B.C., okay. so 70 years later. Um, we're seeing this take place. This is almost 70 years. So like the, the, writing on the, wall? The, the writing on the wall comes about, I think it's 529 B.C. Okay, uh, let's see here. Actually, I don't think it was 529. Uh, that's, uh, I think, when Cyrus comes. So this is a few years before that. It would have been in the 530s. Okay. Okay. And was like, so it was, the prophecy was in the
1: 605 BC and then yeah. what we're talking about right now in Daniel's
0: about. Right. So Jeremiah would be, have been gone. Okay. Daniel would have known him as a young man okay. and uh, would have known Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was, they overlapped just a little bit. By the way, a good study sometimes in the Bible is to find out how these lives overlap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So John Zachardelli, a guy in our church, actually mapped it out on his plotting software and came up with this big chart. The thing that amazed us most when we looked at it is that Noah and Abraham had 70 years together. And according to the Jewish the Midrash, the Babylonian Midrash, Abraham's father sent him to, to study and to be raised by Noah and Shem. Shem later leaves and goes to a place called, um, it was a Jebusite city uh, known as Salem or Shalom. And uh, he becomes uh, known as Melchizedek there, his high priest. So Abraham instantly trusts Shem because he had spent time with him, and that's where that mystery comes from. And that's according to the Babylonian Midrash. What What I'm trying to say here is that, so we have we have some lives that are overlapping here. We have Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a little bit younger than Daniel. We have Esther coming along. And I, don't, I don't think Ezekiel lives as long as Daniel because his writing seems to end at a certain point. You know, lifespans t- to live 90 some years was very rare back then. So now uh, Esther is a little girl, you know, about this time period. So that's how these all kind of overlap. And That's that's how they fit together. I was just painting that picture. We don't see how the puzzle pieces fit together. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment here. So it says, they themselves, talking in verse 14, Babylon themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings, and I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So there's retribution coming against Babylon. (coughs) This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So God sets limits for Babylon even before they come and conquer Israel. They're they're already, the Lord knows, what's going to happen. And uh, so what does this tell you about how God deals with nations? What does this tell you about how God plans? And pretty amazing, isn't it?
1: So he gives them the free will to do otherwise, he knows what will will happen because of his relationship in time and space. And that's
0: exactly, okay, let me repeat that so everybody gets that on the tape. God knows what's going to happen because he's eternal, Mm -hmm. but he allows us to live out in time and space. And this is where people get confused and they think that God determines what happens, and that's not true. He, does, he doesn't determine our actions. He allows, time and space are boundaries that he's given us to live in. Mm-hmm. So I believe that we have perfect total freedom to make right decisions. And I think, I think Belshazzar could have gotten on his knees and repented and something may have happened there. Mm-hmm. I think Nebuchadnezzar could have changed the destiny of his nation. I think Pharaoh uh, could have repented and the Passover wouldn't have needed to happen and didn't have to go that far. He could have said, I believe in your God. I'm going to release you to go. You've been great people here in this land, and we're going to send you out with blessing. And I think Egypt would have lasted many more years. According to archaeologists, by the way, because when when, uh, Moses left with the people of Israel, there were other people that were enslaved in Egypt. They were the Greeks. They went north, and uh, they went to the Isle of Crete. So they lost all their slaves. There was an economic collapse that lasted three to four hundred years in egypt after that you can imagine after all those plagues and uh, after the firstborn dying i mean it put the nation in so the archaeologists kind of make this comment we don't know why it happened
3: it could have it could
0: have been uh some kind of cataclysmic uh weather event yes it could have been a bunch of weather events it could have been all sorts of things happening so Um, You know, and and I I respect science when they're honest. Uh, They can't tell us what happened, but it's interesting how they confirm things that do happen. They don't have an answer, but they go, wow, something happened to Egypt that humbled them as a nation, and they never rise again. The last time that Egypt tries to rise up is with Pharaoh Nico, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar comes down through Canaan, and this is in 605 B.C., And he destroys uh, Pharaoh and Egypt, and from that point on, Egypt is not a factor uh, that much in the Middle East. They are somewhat during the time of Rome, uh, but they never really rise to that level of an empire. So I want to take a moment here, and I want to talk about what brings God's judgment. I think one of the lessons that we're learning here, and we're going to get back to Daniel in a moment, But I want to just take a moment and and talk about what is it that brings God's judgment, because there are things that are consistent with every nation in all time. Uh, Alistair Petrie, uh, some of you have met him when he's been to our church, and uh, he's the one that wrote uh, Releasing Heaven on Earth and a number of other books. Uh, He says there are four things that are consistent with all the prophets in causing God's judgment to come on a nation. Does anybody know what they are? Yes.
1: Broken covenants.
0: Okay, broken covenants.
1: Shedding of innocent blood. Sexual morality. Yes. Perversion. Perversion.
0: These four things are what bring judgment on uh, any people. Nations are judged and people are judged at the level that they are aware of God's truth. People that don't have the knowledge of God are not held at a higher account, but the more revelation of God a country has, the higher the standard of judgment against that nation.
1: The writing's on the wall.
0: The writing's on the wall. The four idolatry, broken covenants, bloodshed, and sexual immorality. If you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, it's pretty consistent. These are the things. I would add one more. The fifth one uh, that Alistair doesn't have in his book, but I know he agrees with this, is how other nations have treated Israel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to add the fifth one. Mm-hmm. And we see that in the Jeremiah passage I just read. The Lord says, so uh, he just mentioned in there, he chose Nebuchadnezzar to punish Israel. But, if you read the other the prophets, and Ezekiel talks about this, uh, he says, "The Lord chose you to humble Israel, but you imagine their total destruction. And because of that, my punishment is coming against you. One of the most amazing things that's happening in our in our world right now is uh, there there was just a proposal for a peace treaty in Israel. okay, And I was reading in the news last night that Arabs living in Israel are rejecting this treaty. Do you know why? They said, we want to live in Israel. We don't want a Palestinian state. <laughs> oh, wow. Because they have their own Arab party that meets in the Knesset. So now you've got the Palestinians that love living in Israel, and then you have Palestinians that feel like they were, you know, out of Israel and whatever. But um, one of the things that is part of this new proposal for a Palestinian state is the Palestinians need to recognize that Israel is a nation right. and that they have a right to exist because throughout all of history and this even goes back to the Oslo Accords when in the negotiations over 92 93 percent of what the Palestinians wanted was offered to them and Yasser Arafat said no That's right. because at the end of the day what he was he refused to exi- uh, admit is that they wanted to annihilate Israel he said, we will not recognize Israel as a nation, and we will not recognize their right to be. And that's that's been the problem. And any nation that imagines the annihilation of Israel doesn't have any future. Mm-hmm. Right. By the way, wouldn't you love to uh, negotiate with somebody that said, well, I don't really uh, admit that you have a right to exist, and if we get a chance here in this negotiations, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> well, things are not going to go very well in that discussion. Yeah, Ruth? Don't they also want yeah. They, well, no, they want all of Jerusalem. Is oh, yeah. Well, no, no, not really. Yeah, and I don't want to get off on this treaty because I haven't had time to really analyze it. I'm reading what other people have said, but my point is, is that this is one of the standards of judgment throughout the Bible, and I believe it's still valid today. Yes. Anybody that wants to divide or destroy the people of Israel is going to come to an end. It's important to know this because as we move from Daniel into the book of Revelation, and whenever we get to that, uh, we're gonna find out that all the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem. You can read about it in Zechariah, you can read about it in Ezekiel, Ezek- Ezekiel 38. You can read about it in, what is it, Psalm 82? Is it Psalm 82 that talks about the uh, the nations that try to annihilate Israel? You can read about it in Revelation. So uh, we need to be careful with that. But I wanna ask you a question, where do you think where do you think the United States stands in regard to these four things?
3: There's only one that they've done. That for God. What's that? Which is the how they treat Israel, because Jerusalem was finally named the capital of Israel.
0: So you're saying that's a plus?
3: That's a plus. It's the plus, because there's idolatry, there's broken covenants, 50 million babies killed sexual moral, immorality to the point the kids aren't told who they are whether they're female or male yeah. I mean it's ridiculous
1: I was reading on uh, Facebook uh, they're saying that child uh, trafficking is huge in Georgia and the Carolinas yep. and, it's, and it's it's, it's huge in Ohio it, yes, it is unfortunately yeah. but taking, taking little people
0: that's right Um, If you you look at these uh, five things, I would say, yes, we've done some good things toward Israel, but I think the United States is in trouble. And we talk about the State of the Union, yes, there's a lot of prosperity right now uh, in our country, but I think spiritually we're in trouble, and we're being balanced on a beam. Half the nation wants to go this way, half the nation wants to go this way. And by the way, it's not Democrat-Republican. It's people that want to honor God and people that don't want to honor God. Right. So last week, a group of Democratic um, leaders went to some of the key uh, members that are running for president, and they said, we are pro-life Democrats. Is there room for us in the party? Mm-hmm. And uh, Pete Buttigieg essentially said, no, there's not. Uh, yeah, and I don't want to get off on, yeah. on tangents here, but I want, us, I want us to think about this. This is how God evaluates. Can I read something to you? Yes. So I I went to the prayer, fasting and prayer gathering. We call this Solemn Assembly uh, up at the uh, campground up on Lake Erie last week with 25 leaders from Cleveland area. And um, I had a really encouraging word to share with them out of Colossians chapter 3. And as I left our house that day um janice and i had been talking and i, I was just so i thought it, it is so awesome we've been we're going to be married what 42 years
1: we'll
0: married forever. yeah forever
1: <laughs> <laughs> we were 20 when we got
0: married <laughs> yeah we were kids yep. when that nurse took our gave us the blood test so that we get our marriage uh, oh, yeah. uh certificate, license, Uh, she said, you two are going to grow up together. And we got (laughs) mad. We got mad and stormed away. She was right. But I drove away, and I was driving to this, and I said, isn't marriage a wonderful thing? And the Lord kept saying to me all the way there, the word marriage kept coming to me. And the Lord said, there's something about marriage, something about marriage. And I said, Lord, what's going on? Not because God's presence was so heavy in the car as I'm driving up there. And the Lord said, I want you to read Malachi chapter 2. So this is what I read. This is Malachi 2. And this is written to the priests. It says, now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send this curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Mm. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction for his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord is saying to you, to the leaders, to the priests, the pastors, the Levites, he's saying, you are the representatives of the Lord, Lord of hosts. Verse 80 says, But you have turned aside from the way, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levites says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all, my, all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways and show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has been faithless, and ab- an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And this is talking about, I believe, this is talking about Asherah, uh, the the worship of the Queen of Heaven being brought into the temple to defile the temple of God. And uh, It says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. And I don't know if you're aware, but uh, the people of Israel actually brought these pagan implements into the temple. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards your offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not accept me? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit and their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let no one be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, Covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. And he goes on. And he goes on from there to talk about how they have not given him the tithe. They've robbed God. And we usually focus on that one, but we don't focus on the one about marriage and godly offspring. And I said, Lord, what are you saying to me here? And the Lord is saying, you're going to be praying about the city of Cleveland. He said, you need to tell the people. But until they repent of the way that they have broken the covenant of marriage. And I've had had people that are gay tell me, they said, there is so much hypocrisy in the church because you winked at adultery and you let all this divorce happen in the church and now you want to punish people for being uh, homosexuals. It's all sin, okay? But it's interesting, and... He says, this is, and I said, Lord, so what are you saying to me? He said, it's in the church. The leaders of the church have not honored their marriage covenant, and they have defiled my church. And then the Lord said this to me, until there is a repentance among the leaders in the city over the way that they have treated their husbands, their wives, their spouses, (coughs) he said, I will not move in this city. The second thing he said is, notice what I said about godly offspring. He said, there are pastors in this city that have told people it's okay to get an abortion. And the blood of the children is crying out to me from the ground. And I looked, and Cleveland has, it's terrible. The rate of abortion is terrible. So I wanted to bring this really happy message to these guys, (laughs) the, the prayer thing. And it's interesting, because when I said it, the whole room went quiet. Because sometimes we're ready to say hallelujah real fast, and then you get a message like that, and you say, oh, God. I have to tell you, I feel like we're in, and I'm going to get prophetic here, so I'm going to step into the prophecy zone. I believe that judgment is determined against the United States. I believe that God was going to bring judgment years ago, because of the response of the church. He has given us time. But if we don't take the opportunity of the season that we are in, that we are going to face judgment again, that there's a shaking coming. And I felt at the beginning of this year that God started the prophetic time clock again. And that's why, if you get online, all these people are talking about Daniel and Revelation. It may be the year 2020 has triggered that, just like uh, the year 2000 triggered a lot of talking about the coming of the Lord. But I believe it's more than that. I believe that uh, God has restarted the time clock and that there is shaking that is coming. And I believe the Lord wants us as his people to respond to him. Even if the people around us don't respond, we need to respond. Ezekiel says, and I'll get to comments in a moment or questions. Ezekiel in his book says, before the judgment falls on Jerusalem back in the time of the kings that when Nebuchadnezzar came, the Lord says to Ezekiel, take note of everybody in the city that mourns over the sin that's happening and put a mark on their forehead and he tells them, he says even though all this judgment is coming to the people around them, tell the righteous it will go well with them Mm -hmm. we need to know even if everybody around us gives way to these things, we need to stand for the Lord and not give in And that's what God is saying to us in this season. So how important were broken covenants? Look at what I just read in Malachi. Why was God judging Israel? There were there were three things. They, they dishonored his word. They broke the covenant of marriage. And they robbed him the tithes and offerings. They did not give him the first fruits of their blessings and increase. But broken covenants is a huge thing. I have some people telling me, America's in a golden age. God said President Trump is his agent, and everything is going well, and everything is going fine. Now, I've got to tell you, I like a lot of what President Trump is doing. And I'll tell you right now, last night when he made the statement, he said, we need to stop aborting children. And he took a stand for the children. There has not been a president that's been as pro-life as President Trump I mean, I can't remember anybody that took a stand like he did last night. I
3: know. He walked in the pro life march,
0: too. He was the first president to personally address the pro life march. Reagan got close, came on over, you know, uh, audio or whatever, and spoke to the people, but he actually appeared out there. And I've got to say that, like every king, you know, the Lord says, these are the good things, but these things I hold against you. I would rather have President Trump than just about anybody else that's out there in the field right now. Amen. Oh, yeah. Okay? I wish he wouldn't offend people sometimes. I wish he would be a little bit different. I'm just being honest with you, Uh, but I I have to tell you, I'm I'm impressed with him taking a stand on things like that. And I have to think to myself, what's in it for him to take a stand pro-life like that?
3: Votes. No.
0: Maybe, but there are other ways to get votes. What did you say? Republicans for years, and I'm going to say it. Republicans for years have promised that they're going to do something about abortion, and they haven't done a thing. Yeah, so. And that's why a number of years ago I stopped calling myself a Republican. I'm conservative, but I've seen the Republicans sell people out. Yeah. Okay, and I'm telling you that these, if you want to, if you want to look at the presidential election and evaluate your candidate, keep these things in mind. These five things. That makes sense, Michael. You were going to say something. Well, you know, it seems that at the end times, everything's taking place. The devastation taking place in Africa right now with the locusts—yes, five hundred times what they usually have. I saw pictures. I couldn't believe it. It was like a tidal wave had come in and was covering everything, and it was locusts covering yeah. everything. And I and I think that you you're seeing this is happening around the world in various areas. And I think you're seeing, the revelation is there. I right mean, now, the greatest devastation that's happening around the planet is happening where Christians have been persecuted the right. strongest. Right. Iran has
1: been up Nigeria
0: I know. It's terrible what's happening in Africa. We don't even hear it on the news. And China has taken a stand against Christians. They're not only persecuting Christians, they're persecuting Muslims as well and other groups, but they are. Uh, it's terrible what they're doing. They're putting people in relocation camps. I don't even want to get into it. But I've got to tell you, the shaking that's coming. And people want to talk about global warming. And I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves because we're going to get into this when we get in Revelation. But if you look at the environmental devastation of the planet in the early parts of Revelation, it's related to this spiritual climate of what's happening. If you want to know why things don't go well in your land, these things ca- cause devastation to the ecosystem. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we can recycle all we want and pers- conserve energy and be responsible. All of that's good, by the way. God teaches us to be good. We need to let the planet rest. We need to do Sabbath. We need to be good stewards of the land. But by the same token, if we're doing these things, if our land is full of divorce, Broken covenants, where so much so, where you can't even trust what a leader says in business, where there's idolatry happening, where there's bloodshed in our cities. I mean, if you look at places like Baltimore and some of our in Chicago are two of the worst cities right now. They're, Baltimore is a much smaller city than New York, their murder rate is so much higher. It's terrible. And these things and sexual immorality is through the roof. I hear and, and, and understand where I'm coming from. People will say, well, but America is the greatest missionary sending country in the history of mankind. And that's true. We're also the largest exporter of pornography. We're also the largest in sex trafficking, OK? And you say, well, what's, what's going on with that? We at this meeting that we had last week, we noted that our conference is going to take place on the, on the same day in November of the signing of the Mayflower Compact 400 years ago. Wow. The same other event that happened with this year is the first slave ship arrived on the coast of continental America. Mm-hmm. The pirates and the saints have been fighting it out for 400 years on this land. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know why our nation's divided, it's all coming to a head. And in that meeting last week, we thanked God for the good things that America's done because America is like no other country in so many ways. But at the same time, we acknowledge the evil and the wickedness, and they're both there. Some people just see one side or the other. I see both sides. And the Lord said, by the way, we had African-American pastors and and white leaders there. One of the African-American pastors said, I hear you talking about the Mayflower Covenant, and I think about the first slave ship. And that's when I said, "This is 2020 vision. We have to have both lenses and understand what's happening in our culture and what's happening in our country." But this is—we need—we need a move of God, folks. Amen. Right. We need a move of God because of the defilements in our land. Let's finish. We, we hold that thought. We're gonna—we're gonna move on because we're at the end of our time. And by the way, I thought about what to do today, and you may say, "Well, Pastor Joe uh, migrated a little bit." I think this chapter is all about understanding judgment. So that's why I went into Jeremiah and some of the other. We need to understand this is how it applies to us today. We can look at Belshazzar and say, oh, that's the way God worked back then. I've had evangelicals tell me God doesn't judge people today.
1: Really?
0: And that God doesn't judge nations. They must believe that Revelation already happened. Okay? I I don't get it. They don't understand Daniel. So let's look at verse uh, 29. And by the way, uh, we didn't get to it today, but Jeremiah 28 is a chapter that talks about the difference between true and false prophets and how they operate. If you want a good Bible study this week, read Jeremiah 28. Okay? Jeremiah goes head-to-head with the false prophets of his day. And do you know what the false prophets were saying in Jeremiah's day? Everything's going great. God's going to bless this country. Jeremiah's a fool. He's just a negative person. Okay, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, says this about Darius. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes. Xerxes is the Persian name, okay, but Xerxes was Ahasuerus. They're the same. This is the king that, of, of Esther, yes. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word the Lord had given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So Daniel tells us that after Darius comes and overthrows the Babylonian kingdom, he goes back to Jeremiah and reads the scroll. And this is where he says, now I'm understanding what God is doing. And this is where he prays. We're going to read uh, Daniel's prayer, Daniel 9. It's a beautiful prayer of repentance on behalf of his people. So the Medes were subject to the Persians at this time. Darius was probably a title like Caesar. Uh, Darius was thought, um, historians and archaeologists believe that he was a high general or governor. But he was already under the authority of Cyrus. Uh, They were were still separate kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians, but the time was coming when Cyrus was going to march into Babylon himself and declare himself the ruler. So there's the statement. Yeah, let me read that again. Daniel 9.1, it says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood Xerxes is Ahasuerus. So if you go to the book of Esther, Esther's king.
1: So
0: how old was this guy? Daniel was 90s. So Esther's Esther's probably about 20, and Daniel's in his 90s. So their lives overlap a little bit here. Kings usually had um, harems of young women all the way into their later years. Just be glad you live here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jeff, were you going to say something? Okay, Okay, final comments. Yes, ma'am.
1: Uh, when you spoke to the, the pastors in yes. your group, my, my fault went to uh, the priests in the Catholic Church under broken covenant that mm-hmm. they did not many of them have not sustained their vows of celibacy so they followed a, that judgment uh, as well.
0: That's another example of broken covenant, but the thing that chills me the most and I want you to think about this and had a prophecy years ago about this he said today there are millions of people in America that are going to take communion in churches that no longer believe in the bible and they no longer believe in what jesus teaches and they'll take this they'll say the words of the whole the same thing that we do in the you know in the uh, communion liturgy which are powerful words whether they're from the book of common prayer or we do the celtic or whatever but think about what we say We're proclaiming a covenant with the living God through the blood of his son. What seals that covenant? Why is God concerned about that? And then they walk out and they do the exact opposite and they totally disobey the Lord. That's broken covenant. And and he said this happens week after week after week. And the leaders that lead these churches and have people repeat the words of these covenant when they really don't mean it from the heart are heaping judgment upon judgment on themselves. Francis. So, yes, sir?
2: When you're talking about all of this and the church and how it responds, the example in the Old Testament that just jumps out at me is in Second Chronicles 20, 22, where it's Jehoshaphat. Mm-hmm. Jehoshaphat, you were surrounded, but the source was the power of God. And when we look at the wickedness and the evil and the surrounding, and everything. That's a very real threat, but our focus has got to be on the Lord and responding and praying and looking to Him. Mm-hmm. And that's. Yep. That's what overcomes all of that.
0: Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, we uh, we need to cry out to God.
1: I think we should pray for the country.
0: I do. I think let's let's stand together. Can we do that? I want to take a moment. Let me start, and then please just lead out and speak as loud as you can. We'll put this on the tape, too, because I think this is important. But Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the Lord Most High who has created all things. All the nations are in your hand, and you tell us, Lord, that the hearts of the kings are in your hand. It's evident to us, Lord, that you have a plan for every nation, whether it's Israel, Whether it's Babylon, whether it's Persia, whether it's the Medes, whether it's Rome, it doesn't matter. The United States, you have a plan. And Father, I believe that from the beginning of time, you had a plan for the United States. There was a a glorious, godly plan, a place where all the people of the nations could come and flee and find religious freedom and find uh, the, the freedom to be and serve you. And yet at the same time, there were people that came with an evil imagination about enslaving other people. And I even think about Georgia. Georgia started as a colony that did not allow slavery. And after years of fighting, after I think 70 or 80 years, they changed and they opened the door to slavery. God, there were people from the beginning of time that tried to walk in righteousness. But there were also people with wicked hearts and evil intent. Lord, I just pray in this hour that there would be a move of your Holy Spirit in our land. We pray, God, that you would have mercy on us, Father, for all the lives of children that have been aborted, that their blood cries out from the ground, God. We, Lord, we ask forgiveness for the Uh, broken covenants, the divorce that's in our land, the way that marriage has been dishonored. And and it's no longer a covenant of love between you and a, a man and a woman, but it's any sexual constellation that people want it to be. Father, we have defiled our land. And Lord, we ask for there to be a move of your spirit, a conviction of sin, We ask, Father, that you would raise up a holy remnant. Let the remnant be as large as possible. I pray that there would be a move of your spirit, Lord, among all the generations that are alive on the planet. I pray especially for millennials, Lord. Some of them have never heard these things, these principles about your truth. And I pray, God, that these young people especially would hear the word and that they would respond to the word. I pray that you would give courage to your children, that we would stand with boldness, not fearing what people think about us, but that we would stand up. And this is the message of the book of Daniel, Lord. These young men stood for you even though their lives were possibly going to be forfeit. Give us the courage to stand in these days, Lord, and not to give in to the sin around us. We thank you, Lord. We know we have some good leaders in this land. We also have some very ungodly leaders in this land. I pray that you would raise up people like Daniel, like Esther, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Raise up people, Lord, in this generation that will stand for you and will not compromise. Yes. People who will speak truth to power, truth to the kings, yes. so to speak. Yes. And Lord, I pray that you would awaken your church in this hour. Wake the church up, God. Wake the church up. Even people in these historic churches that hear the words and sing the hymns and have the old traditions, Lord, I pray that you would wake many of them up and bring them out of the compromised church and that you would raise up, Lord, your true church in this hour and yes, make your church yes. mighty and strong. Yes. Lord, we just ask for a harvest.
1: Yes. Of Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing oh, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Yeah. Lord, this was written to believers that were living um, during the Roman Empire which we know is a really depraved society, and so much of what we are experiencing morally, historians have looked back to that time as well. And, Lord, so we know we're not alone. We know we're not the first generation to cry out to you, living in a depraved society. Mm -hmm. But, Lord, here we are today, Lord, and we are crying out to you. And I want to pray, Lord, that you would raise up this next generation as they take over the church, Lord. Uh, the young people they would Lord fear that you, they God. would have a literal hunger you, and appetite oh, for help holiness them, Lord. Help that them, they would God. crave yes, holiness yes, Lord.
0: Yes, yes. Lord. Lord
1: that they would crave uh, the throwing off of the old yes. in fact Lord that make them rebels that they would become a people that would revolt
0: yes. against the societal norms yes. of right. depravity yes. Yes. Yes.
1: God raise them up in holiness Lord that is loving That is not condemning, but that is all about health. Like, you know what? This isn't right. This is making us sick and depraved. Let's throw this off and become healthy and holy people, Lord. Bless them and bless us, Lord, as we help mother and father them up, Lord. But bless them, I pray. And not just in this country, Lord, but around the world. Around the world, that's right, Make them a mighty army for you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.
0: Lord, just let these words resound in our heart. We thank you, Lord, of the testimony of Daniel and other people that stood for you in these stories. Your word tells us in 1 Corinthians that you gave us these examples to teach us how to live in the new covenant. So, Lord, let these words resound in our heart and change us. We thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.